Yeah, wait a minute. I'm having some... Okay, recording has just started. Um, yes. Okay, I'm hoping this is going to work. They said recording it's started, good. then it's... All right. Yeah, it said recording started on my end as well. Okay. All right, you gave me uh, 11 questions. I'm going to mm-hmm. change the order of the questions. Okay. Uh, I'm going to... And I'm going to cut. You, we have. I'm going to cut you off when I think you're am, you're just going too long on the answer. Good. Okay. That sounds okay. good to me. All right. The first question I have is, and I'm going to ask this question at the beginning of the session, and at the end of the session. All right. Okay. First question. Why are you writing this book? I'm writing this book because I feel that there's an important story to be told about the journey that I went on with my son from um, during his, his journey in life with having autism. And... I think the story is unique because of how severe his autism was and how his pattern of um, being able to have uninterrupted early intervention help changed the entire course of what he and I did together. He was... um, Unfortunately, a child that was, you know, going through, born at a time, a tumultuous time with him and his father and I, who we were going through a divorce, and back 32 years ago when autism was not understood. So basically, decisions were made that were out of my hands when he, um, I couldn't get a diagnosis, I sent him to be with his father, and then he was kept from me. So that was a very specific thing that was very damaging on so many levels, and it was not, not, not the right decision to make to hold a mother from her son. During that time, he was given medications, uh, a lot of medications that were hard on his system that I did not agree with, and I was again told that I had no say in that. As his mother, I should have had a right. I should have had a say in that. And I think there's something to be said in this book about the responsibility that that two people have when they get married and have children to remain in contact, to remain in communication with one another for the sake of the children. And too many times I think we get off track on that of, on our own agenda as human beings, as people that are hurt in love or, you know, whatever in my case, cheated on or him, whatever his case was. So CJ was... Um, drugged heavily from four years old until nine years old. And the journey we went on for 20 years of getting those drugs out of his body was a difficult journey, very difficult journey of what of to do that, how to get that out, and how to have him be strong enough and tenacious enough, enough as an autistic person and an autistic child to be willing to be led through very intense and difficult programs that took years and years of time. So that in itself is, 
is is part of the story. Then the other part is how he came through it at the end and, you know, was once upon a time a kid that was banging his head on the floor and biting his wrist and screaming and angry and unable to even sit in a chair who's now sitting in a helicopter and able to handle the noise and the, the that's that's hard for even normal people to have the to not be afraid to fly or not be to to not to be afraid to get in a helicopter or to learn how to talk to people and push past past their fears and i just think the story has such an incredibly beautiful ending about how cj started as cj changed his name to christian and then changed his name to chris so we call him chris now how he now has what he calls his fearless life and literally is living a life where he's no longer afraid of noises and no longer afraid of all these things that held him back and made him so terrified of life and so confused that his only recourse was just to bite and kick and scream and 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 be completely out of control and now here's a kid who is loved by everyone that meets him basically he's just got a heart of gold i think there's a message here to talk about the fact that in the beginning, both he and his, me and his father were guilty of not wanting to take care of him. I had given up on him when they started putting drugs on him. I didn't believe that there was any hope for him. I believed that I didn't matter anymore in his life. I bought into the idea that they could do a better job than I could. His father, once he came here, didn't continue to check on him or really worry about what was going on with him. And so he was sort of this kid that no one really knew what to do with and nobody really wanted to do the job. And by the end of it, it has turned out to show me that these children that come into this world with disabilities or special needs or autism or Down syndrome or whatever it may be, termed brain injury, are really very special, special people in God's eyes. They're so pure-hearted they're so more sensitive than the world than I than we are and that's why sometimes noise and sound and light and things are so hard for them but I I think that this story also is a very much a story about a mother who learned how to be redeemed as well from from my own isolating walls of feeling that I was worthless and that I didn't have value to him and realize that in God's eyes, everybody is valuable. Everybody has importance. And we have to believe that within our own self. God can't put that in us, that belief. And ironically, my son is the one that showed me that value by doing a, quote, job that I did not want to do. And it ended up being the most important thing I could have ever done. And the thing that was the hardest trial and seemed to me the worst punishment I could have ever been given ended up being a gift and a blessing in my life because if you look at life as an opportunity to grow and become the best version of yourself, that sometimes doesn't look what you think it's going to be. You know, a diamond in the rough doesn't look, it doesn't feel fun to be chipped away and ground and, and all these other things until it starts to shine. And that's kind okay. of what was going on here for both of right. us. What do you want to help? What do you hope to accomplish by writing this book? Is that another question? Yeah, it's another question. Although you answered part of it already. 
But that um, was just one of your... if there can be any kind of um, inspiration to any other person who's feeling like a lack of self-esteem or feels like they've kind of lost hope or they've been given a lot in life that they don't understand or they've been given a child that they don't know what to do with. Um, I'm also hoping that I can give another perspective to parents who are so, you know, readily told by schools and by doctors to just give their kids a pill and to kind of have some impact in understanding that that's not necessarily the best solution for that child, even though it's easier at the time. Um, what is it, what havoc is it truly creating in their system and their chemical imbalance? Uh, Chris was very specific when the drugs were coming out of his body in the programs that we did about how they hurt his stomach, how they made his head hurt, how they made him confused, how they made him angry, how they didn't, you know, there's so many things that these drugs are doing, the side effects that they're sedating the children, they're making them sleep at night, they're making them not be a, quote, problem or a behavior problem, but they're not necessarily helping that person come back to us learn to thrive in life and I believe that that can happen in a much better and safer way medication free by using a certain diet you know by listening to other natural methods that are out there I'm hopefully hoping that this can inspire parents that maybe they won't choose the path that I chose but they can find their own path and and I want to be able to refer to my sister um, and my brother, who are both medical doctors that were very much on the path of, you know, my sister wrote a book called Pain, It's Not What It Seems. I want to be able to refer to her book where she, as a medical doctor, saw this dilemma of people just wanting to have a pill, you know, the opioid uh, dilemma that we have, where she in her book outlines so many different other methods that can be used kind of for the parents because the parents need a lot of help with these in this situation with a special needs child because we are overwhelmed. We don't always know how to get support. And if we can find methods that work to help us to be more calm, to be more in touch with our, you know, our God self or in in connection with prayer with God to believe in that method of being guided, um, things do happen. Miracles do happen. My son, I believe is a walking miracle of what can happen when you know, someone listens to the guidance of of God. And I think that's another thing in this book is, is that, you know, what does that mean when you, I had nowhere to go. There was no internet. There was no information about autism. And I had been taught to pray as a little girl. I'd seen my mother pray. I believed in that path. And I believe it's a very real thing that we live in this world that's all physical everything that we see but that's only a small percent of what is truly real that the larger percent kind of like an iceberg the physical world is the tip and what's really underneath what's really what's really running things is the spiritual um, guidance and pathways and energies from god directing us when we ask for that help in prayer so that's okay. another thing that i'm hoping all right so what I hear you saying on this answer is that you hope this book, um, you're you're looking at this book to give hope and inspiration and alternatives for people who are dealing with the overwhelming problem of autism in their child. Yes. 
and okay. to look and even in their life it could might not be autism it might be you know people i'm hoping people that don't aren't necessarily dealing with someone you know with autism that's that they they could use this for their own life and say i don't have a special needs child but i'm feeling isolated and frustrated and sad and kind of broken myself and here's this woman that was feeling that way and what did she do about that how did she find a way out how 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 do I what do I do if I do have a child that's you know running into some of these problems and rather than just trying to sedate or give them a pill what can I do on this pathway and who really is God in our life you know it's different for each person but how does that become a very real directive I, okay. I think what I'm trying to say is that you know it's not like this thing where you see I you see a beam of light it's it's a phone call you receive from someone telling you about a certain book to read it's a person that you have a conversation with that tells you about a certain doctor or a certain program those are things that seem like coincidences but I believe that that's God guiding you and that there's a flow to those certain things that when that you follow it like kind of going a current of a river when you're struggling and going upstream and everything is hard and there's no people you know there's chaos and drama okay let's go to this way Okay, let's go to this next section. What are you afraid of? What I'm afraid of is that I, I've learned to live uh, uh, without caring really what people think about me when I'm fighting for CJ. Like at first when I would go into the school meetings or I would meet people, I grew up, it's ironic. It's interesting when you're asking me this, something is coming to my mind. I grew up as a performer. I was a dancer. I was a performer. I was an actor. So the, the, what people thought of me was really important. I wanted applause. I wanted to be accepted and thought well of. When I went into the world of fighting for CJ, all that went away. I could no longer care what anybody thought about me. I just ha- was fighting for him. If the teachers didn't like me, if the principal didn't like me, if the superintendent didn't like me, at first I wanted them to like me. At first I thought if I cried, they would feel sorry for me and do the right thing. And I learned, nope, that doesn't work at all. Um, what, the, what they need to know is, do you know the law? There's very specific laws guiding th- th- these children and what they deserve to have, what their legal rights are. And if the parent doesn't know what those laws are, they don't know what their rights are, they're just going to be, you know, thrown into a system of being told what to do that might not be the best thing for their kid. So you have to learn how to, to do some research, find out what is needed to, when you go into those meetings, and then you have to not care if they like you or not because they're not going to like what you have to say, not because they're not good people, but because they're already overwhelmed doing their job with regular kids, much less trying to figure out your, your kid with special needs and fitting them into the system. So the parent really has a responsibility to go in there solid and fight for the, their child and also to fight fair. You can't go into the system and say, I want you to do blah, blah, blah for my kid when, you know, like I want you to make them have art classes and let them go to, you know, with all the kids on the field trips when they – you haven't done the work at home to have them be able to be able to sit in a chair without throwing a fit. You can't throw that onto other people. You have to know what the limitations are with your child and what you're asking for is fair and right. Because 
placement cannot happen until after everyone on the team determines that it's the best placement for the child and it's the one closest to home and it's the most adequate for that child. The school will try to throw out a placement that works for them that might be like in my case happened. It was an hour away and he was on a bus with a screaming kid and he was not in an appropriate classroom. But I didn't know that I had another option. I didn't know I had the right to have another option until Chris was coming home and was pulling the skin off of his hand and was so distraught that I was like, something else has to happen here. And then I met up with a, a certain advocate that taught me, oh, no, you have rights. Oh, no, this is not how it has to be to, to go down. So I'm hoping I can share some of that in my section about, you know, navigating the school system. But when I talk about being afraid of writing the rest of the book, I'm not afraid of writing about the, the actual part of the book uh, that deals with what I did with CJ, the fight that I did with CJ. But there was other parts of the book that I don't personally believe I would be writing from a truly honest place if, if I didn't talk about the journey we went on for 20 years of getting the drugs out of his body that I never put in his body. I would never would have chosen that. I was, I was kept from making that decision. And I had guidance from my sister who's a doctor who could have helped me do that the right way. But, but when, my, when my ex and his wife kept my son from me, I w those choices were taken from me. So um, I'm afraid sometimes when I, if I look in the true honest part of me, Jim is a famous person. He's in the limelight. He um, is well known. He's well thought of. He is one of those people that I lived with him and I know how what a chameleon he is. He is larger than life. He's very, very got some of the best PR people skills I've ever seen in a human being. He can charm and, uh, everybody. He's very charming. He knows how to look you in the eye. He knows how to smile. He's very, he, he not swept me off my feet the moment I met him. But there's also a villain behind that saint. And when he was a villain with me, he was not a nice person are a good person in the sense of keeping me from my son. And I believe that that part of the story needs to be told because I can't talk about, oh, I spent 20 years taking drugs with my son when I didn't, you know, put him in there. Or the fact that I wasn't able to do it during his early intervention years because he was married to someone that was insecure and didn't want my son to be with me. She wanted to prove she was better. Those are, those are things that I believe need to be pointed out in, in, in the chronology of this story and I also now when I'm at the end of the book I'm in a place to be able to say now that I've been able to go on this journey with my son I see that it's important to look at those people that you see as the villains in your life as a gift in the end because I never would have pushed as hard as I did or had to do as much as I did or learn as much as I did to be able to bring Chris through what we went through together if I hadn't been uh, challenged so much, you know, back at that time. I mean, I wouldn't have want, I'm not saying I wanted to go on this journey. I would have preferred not to have drugs in him and just go through early intervention regular because I also have the other side of that coin, which is I have a girlfriend who has a son who did not have to go through having drugs in his body, and she was able to do the early intervention, and I've been able to track how much further he is in life than Chris probably will ever be based on the decision that, that 
was made that I couldn't do that with my son earlier on, take care of him with a healthy diet and without drugs, et cetera. So I have a fear that when I get, when it's all said and done, that certain people will not look at the entire arc of the story, but that they will criticize. When I say the they, I say Jim and Kathy, um, I'm a little scarred. I'm not a little scarred. I'm a lot scarred from going through literally three decades of time and not only not being acknowledged or encouraged or told, you know, good job, but on the other hand, being criticized and put down and told that I'm ridiculous and that, that I'm, you know, really kind of nothing. Back when they were keeping CJ from me, they were basically saying those words. You're not, you're inadequate. You're not a good enough mother. The reason we're keeping them from you is because you can't do the right job. We're going to do better. And those kind of jabs and those kind of attacks, I am trying to get past those as I'm writing and realize that they really shouldn't have been saying it back then, and they shouldn't be saying it now, but the fact that he never really was checking on his son along the way and never really wanted to know about him and never wanted him to come visit, and now all of a sudden when CJ's doing well, he's, he's accusing me of, of like keeping him from him. And I'm, I'm like, or he, he, when I took CJ to the ballpark, you know, two, two summers ago, um, he 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 acts like every Jim hugs me in front of a you know public. Oh, I'm glad you're here. So good that you brought CJ. And then I get a text on the way home. You should have never come to the ballpark. What are you doing here? And there's there's scars in me because I helped him make it to the big leagues. There was times he wanted to quit, and I'm thinking, can there be a little a grace here on your side to appreciate the person that was there at the beginning with you? I'm because I know how critical he can be and how critical and non-supportive of this family Kathy has been, I'm, I'm sort of afraid that I will be affected by the negativity. They're not going to look kindly on the fact that I'm so revealing what's, what's this the worst story. What's the worst thing they can do? The worst thing they can do is put something out on social media, you know, that says that I'm, you know, a whining ex-wife and that I, um, I should, why do I have to, to bring them into the story? Why can't I just tell the story without them being in it? Why am I bringing, why am I telling the story with real names? Why are, why am I telling the story at all? Um, the, the, that, that's kind of the worst that can happen is just that I get slammed kind of with social media or, because Jim has a platform, um, I mean, I don't know, the worst, if you say what's the worst that could happen is that they would put, you know, an airplane with Clint East sucks flying across the sky <laughs> or put something on it in a, in a newspaper article or in a magazine article or on a TV thing that thousands or millions of people see that says that I'm, you know that I suck and that I and that I shouldn't have ever you know included them in it and why am I bringing them up and, and that kind of thing like making it look like you know we do all this stuff for autism so, we've moved so past they, this hmm? so they so you're still looking for mommy and daddy's approval in this um I don't 
know about mommy and daddy. I have my mom and dad's approval. My mom would be cheering me on. She'd be saying, don't worry about any of them. They don't matter. You're worth, you tell your story. Like, I love you. I'm so proud of you. My dad would be doing the same thing. I, 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 I try to figure out whose approval, like, who, why does Jim still have any kind of hold on me? Um, and Kathy, why, why, did, why do they matter? My parents, my parents, I know how they feel about me and how they would be behind me. But Jim and Kathy, um, I guess maybe because they were the first people that ever criticized me the way they did. Like, like growing up, I grew up in a very supportive religious environment. I, I went to a very supportive university. I was on a dance team. I was very gregarious and outgoing. I was loved. I was a head cheerleader. Like I was just, I lived a life where I was loved by people. It was, it was not until I married Jim and his family, mainly his sisters and his father, were so disapproving of me. And then I went into baseball, and I really didn't fit into the wives how they were in the big leagues. I was I was cool with the minor leagues, but I guess it's the whole money thing. It's it's people that have money, um, and and how they they can present themselves as so much more beautiful and better. So maybe that that's that part of me that that little girl that was always watching my sisters and thought they were better than I was or that they were prettier or more talented but the irony is later on as I grew up I was like I ended up having more money than they did and more more opportunities to travel and perform and more prestige in my life so I was always kind of confused by how that kind of this ugly duckling I turned into the swan but it's like it's I just think if I'm thinking about it that was the that's the first place that I ever felt really cut in my heart that people were wrongly not loving me. Like I didn't do anything not to be loved by them. Okay, um, how they old? Just didn't approve of me. How old are you now? I am I'm 63. How old were you when all this happened? Um, Kathy, I was 22. 22 okay. and then when I met Kathy it was 32. So it was it was in that decade of time. All right, so it's 30 years past. And yeah. I'm being real with you right now. 30 years past, and you're still holding on to the fear. What does that holding on to the fear do for you? It stops me from um, writing. It stops me from being the best I can be. It stops me from being as outgoing as I could be. It stops me from being as confident as I could be. Um, it stops me from shining like I could shine. This is making me a little bit emotional. It stops me from being all those things that I was before that happened. Okay, so it stops you from being happy. And shining. Because I am happy. I'm happy alone. What it's done is it's kind of shut me down. It's kind of shut me down. Like... I've been noticing with this coronavirus, there was a funny thing that came online that from Clint Eastwood. He was saying, I should have realized what a recluse and an antisocial person I've become because I'm not really that affected by this whole epidemic, pandemic. 
because I'm just kind of doing what I was doing, which is being self-isolated anyway. And I've, I've become very comfortable being isolated with me and my son and our little life. And I work with him as a caregiver and I have my certain friends and they know and love me. And I don't have to ever worry about being attacked by anybody ever again in the life that I live now. I keep myself very secluded and safe from anyone that could criticize me. And and I think that my fear is that I'll be opening myself up to criticism and I don't want to feel those feelings of being criticized. Okay, so you have a choice. You either do it or you do it, or you do it in a way that protects yourself. And, and I'm, that's something to think about. Yeah, it's something to think about. It's something that I've struggled with because there's, I mean, I, I'm either going to tell the story as it is or I'm not going to tell it at all because I'm not going to tell a partial story. I'm not going to say, you know, my... I mean, I could I could talk about, you know, look how great Chris is doing right now and th- these are his friends and this is where he's ended up and this is great. Yeah, I can talk, I can just talk about triumph at the end, you know, and not talk about the climb and everything that it took to get there. But I don't think that, you know, there's much to say even about his journey because he, he didn't get where he got where he is. Like if he still had all those drugs in him, if he still had all the emotional debris that we took years to work through, um, he wouldn't be the person he is today. And so it's a matter of, you know, do you write the story and not be afraid that there could be criticism and just say, you know what, the people that are criticizing me don't know the truth. Um, The people that are criticizing me don't know me. I know the people that know me in my life. They say, tell the story, tell the truth of the story. We know you. We know who you are. We know what you've done. Don't be afraid. Um, And so for me to hold back on the truth of the story, um, I feel like you have really been a good guide for me because there's a lot of things, as you know, that I've already been taking out as we've been going along to just try. What I'm doing now is just putting the story in chronological order. And even in, in doing that, um, there are things that need to be said that will include Jim and Kathy just by virtue of there's three main points that I, that I see not being able to avoid having that in. The keeping him from me at a very critical early intervention time, and I think that's an important point in the story, is that parents really need to understand how critical that time is and what can happen in that time if they drug their kids meanwhile. How I think that's an important point. Number two is if they are drugged, what do you do about it? How, what are some options? What are some pathways to be able to have your kid no longer be angry and mad and hurting? Because the drugs actually do do that. They're, they're making, in my, I can talk about my son. I'll be talking about my personal experience. In my son, this is what it happened to him. It could be your experience as well. So the, the early intervention keeping him from me, number two, the drugs and that what it took to get those out. And number three was the the lack of um, the lack of attention to the fact that once he came to live with me, um, they didn't 
follow up on him or want to have any contact with him during that period of time. And that that was not just for for, uh, CJ, but for the other children as well. That there's something to be said about, you know, honoring the, the, the first family, honoring the first marriage, honoring those children that came into this world, and not just, you know, come into a marriage and, and try to make that part disappear. Um, I think that, you know, if anybody else, you know, as I'm talking about this, it almost makes me want to be brave and say, you know, there could be someone else that reads about this or hears about it that's going into a situation and maybe they'll think twice and say, wow, I'm coming into a second marriage and I, I'm feeling all these feelings of wanting to be possessive, but there is another family that deserves to have grace and, and, and importance here. Or, you know, I'm, I'm coming into a situation where I want to just take the easy way out and just drug my kid but maybe there's another way to look at that. Or I don't really want to even look at the reality that my, my child might have an issue because I don't, want to, I don't want to have a label or I don't want to look at my child as anything less than perfect. But if I don't look now, I might miss a really critical period of time where I could have made a huge difference more so than when they're later in life. So I feel like there are things that I've learned that can be beneficial from, for other people, if I can come from a place of writing that is saying, you know, I'm not, I'm not coming from a place of wanting to make anyone bad and wrong in the end, even though there were things that felt that way along the way to me, um, the whole point in the journey of life is to get to where you don't have to feel that anymore. But it doesn't mean you don't recognize that there was wrong that happened. It just means that you don't say, I'm going to continue to hate them and want to make them, you know, pay for what they did. I was not doing that all the way along. And so at, at this point, it's like focus on, I focused on my life and what I had to do. And that is why I've gotten to where I'm at. It's because I wasn't putting my energy into trying to make them bad and wrong or put my time and attention in talking about Jim and Kathy or trying to call people and like I, I they were out of my universe they were not even in my thoughts they were not they're not in my thoughts on a daily basis I you know there have been people neighbors and stuff around here my brother lives with, with us now and neighbors will sometimes say things to him like well wasn't she married to like Jim God but you know pirates and he, he just right I said Jeff if anyone please if please help me you're living with me please let them know that that's not my life now that I am I am not the baseball player's wife that I am not interested at all in being connected to that I am Clinice Vincent mother of four children single head of household and that's it I don't I'm not really associated with some connection to my life because he's not a, he's not a connection to me I don't feel a connection to him I do feel that um if I'm going to tell a story, he's the father of my children, and so there is a connection. And there were points in the story where he had an impact that I need to talk about that impact. But um, that's why I'm really working on steering away from certain details that don't necessarily just keep the story moving forward. Just keep the story <laughs> moving forward. <laughs> Excuse me. Achoo. Oh, my. Bless you. 
Bless you. No. Bless you. <laughs> Bless you. And that's why I wanted to send you some of the um, videos today so that you could see, you know, more, um, you know, how it was when CJ came to me versus, you know, I, I was just looking at them today myself uh, when he was throwing the tantrums as a nine-year-old. And it made my stomach hurt just hearing him screaming like that. And I don't, I haven't taken the, dug this video out, you know. Um, but I felt like I wanted you to really see this is, this is after five years of being on drugs. This is where he's at. And then you see him get off that school bus, calm, happy, jumping with his brothers, which was only a year and a half later. Mm. And that wasn't even when all the drugs were out of his body. That was just from doing the program and getting oxygen to his brain and changing his diet and weaning him off drugs. That was just doing that piece of it. That was just from the Philadelphia um, program. That's how far he had come in a year and a half. So imagine how much further he needed to go um, to, you know, be able to be where he is today when we were able to actually get the drugs completely out of his body and, and have him be able to talk about those painful events that were, were making him so angry. And okay. then... He, that opened him up to a place in his life. Like every step along the way opened him up. The Philadelphia program made it possible for him to even be around people at all. You saw in the video, he, he would have never been able to go to school or been around anybody. He was just tantruming, mm-hmm. kept kicking, screaming, biting, couldn't sit in a chair. So through the Philadelphia program and then bringing therapists in that helped him with behavioral management and he was on a healthy diet and he was on supplements and he was no longer medicated, he started being able to be around other kids at school and open into the social social world. And then we had to navigate the school system to get that placement continue to be correct, you know, as, as he went through all the way up to, to age 22. And in that, during that period of time after 22, that's another part of the book that I want to point out is I'm, I have the advantage of writing about not just a child with autism, but a young adult with autism. Because after age 25, these kids are allowed to go to school until 20, age 22. And then 22, 23, 24, 25, there's these little social programs that they have available to them. They can go and watch a movie. They get, you know, pizza. They get to go to these little um, activities, summer camps and stuff. But at age 25, boom, once again, that funding ends. And now you've got these 25-year-olds, and what are they supposed to do? Can they get a job? Sometimes they can only get the job at those places where, um, you know, we had the option of, of Chris to go where you just kind of put nuts and bolts or bend hangers or do stuff like that. And it's, it's a good work environment. However, uh, he, he's around, not around typical behavior. So he's going to start modeling kids that are banging their head and kids that are tantruming and screaming and biting. So you're trying to keep your kid in as typical of an environment as you can so they will model that behavior. So, so trying to get a job for him, that was a two-year process that was going nowhere. We finally found the job for him at Charlie's. So there are things that you've got to keep doing as a parent to be proactive. And then the step after the Philadelphia program and after doing the four purification rundowns and after doing the 350-session hours where he talked about all of his feelings, that's when he was finally ready to make contact with his helicopter company. He could have never had the relationship he's had with them and these experiences of 
talking in front of a group and making these friends and, and talking on the phone and texting and plant, making these plans to go to the air bases and, and, and getting these you know, honorary flight wings and all of this stuff that's happening to him. He could have never been ready for that if he hadn't done all these other programs to prepare him to not be angry, to be more aware of other people around him, to have conversations. Like okay. I remember we first gave him a phone. You know, we said we want him to have a phone before we went to the Kentucky program. You know, so he can, you know, talk to us and talk to people. And he, he this is this is free. And if you need to, have, if there's an emergency, then you know to, to dial nine one one. So he'd be calling nine one one, and they'd answer, and he'd say, um, "If there's a fire in our house, would that be an emergency?" And they're like, "Well, is there a fire in your house? No, but if there was one, would that be an emergency?" <laughs> yeah, he he wasn't he wasn't. Uh, ready to have a phone yet. He would be calling his dad at 3 o'clock in the morning in California. He didn't, wasn't aware of time zones. Like, he had to become more aware of the world and people, and, and he's there now. That's the great thing, you know. But there were, there were many things that he wasn't ready that he couldn't be having the life he has now if he hadn't done all these other steps beforehand. Okay, so... Let's go to, do you honestly believe this book can help others and would be worth the risk of being rejected or criticized? You know, I think from answering the prior question that I, I feel differently than if you would have asked me this before. So I really appreciate you asking me some of the questions you did about what's the worst thing that could happen. Ironically, that's the way my mother raised me. Um, she raised me to ask that question. What's the worst thing that could happen? And if you can live with that, then you've got nothing to worry about. So if the worst that can happen is that somebody could write some article about me or put something on social media, and if that's the worst that could happen, and then the best that could happen would be that somebody could get helped, somebody's life could be made better, someone could be inspired, someone could make a better decision for their child, someone could make a better decision for their marriage, someone could make a better decision for themselves, someone could learn to be brave, someone could learn to have self-esteem again, and someone could learn maybe even me <laughs> to shine again and to not just be self-isolating and scared to be all I can be. Um, it would be worth it. Okay. So, if you were to pass today, would you feel as though what you were done? Would you feel as though you've done what you were meant to do in this life? Um. You know, when I first came back from Kentucky, I was very ill. Um, I was anemic. I was so sick. Like, this program almost took me out. Doing what I've done for Chris literally was the hardest thing I could have ever imagined. These programs were not easy. Um, financially, mm -hmm. emotionally, I was hanging on by a thread. I've, ha I've had 
almost three years of seeing very good doctors who have helped me with my blood levels, with my iron levels, with my health. Um, not to mention I was going through menopause and was bleeding for almost three solid months. So it's like I was going through so many changes in my life. Um, I lost a dear brother and a dear sister um, within six months of each other. I lost a dear, dear lover last year. I felt lost that I never thought I would have at this point in my life. I, I, you expect that your parents will pass. Um, I miss my mom terribly, and I also am grateful for my dad. I'm grateful that I've been writing this because I feel like I've been reconnected with myself and with my family and with my roots. When I first came home from Kentucky, the way I was feeling, I remember saying to myself, and the reason I wanted to ask this question today is I wondered how I would feel today. I remember saying, I'm ready to go, God. I've done what I needed to do. I'm tired. I don't want to keep doing this anymore. I'm, I'm exhausted. I don't think I'm strong enough to keep going. And in my week, um, I, I, felt, I remember saying, I've done what I was meant to do. Look at, look at CJ. Look at Chris. He's happy. He's got good caregivers. I've got a home that he can live in forever. I've got money aside that he'll always be able to have people to look after him. Um, but now, when you ask me this question today, what was the question? Am I ready? Would I feel like I've done everything? No, I don't feel like I've done everything that I was intended to do because you know what? I feel like there's more joy to be experienced. There's more experiences with Chris that he and I have become such a great team together. We have so much fun. Like I feel like we're just beginning to explore the wonders of life together now. I feel like I've finally like, got the relationships with my other three children in a healthy, happy place. My relationship with my daughter has been mended. My two sons know, twin sons know that I'm here for them and love them. Ryan still works with, with Chris. Um, I've got great caregivers. I've got a great group. I love my home. I love my puppy. I've got so many great things in my life. I've got great girlfriends. Um, I don't feel like, like I'm ready to go. And I feel like I do feel like this book is important. I feel like, you know what, this is my legacy in a way of, of being able to, like I remember saying, and this is going to probably answer the other question about why did I write 400 pages? Is it okay if I kind of combine those two? Sure. So why did I write 400 pages before I got to the, to the autism story? I'm realizing so clearly that I had lost track of me in the process of finding Chris. I had been fighting for him. I didn't care what people thought of me. I didn't care if they liked me or they didn't. I had become shut down to so many emotions and perceptions because just even with autism, listening to the screams and the tantruming and the fighting and the drama and all that, you just can't feel things as much <laughs> to survive it. You just kind of have to become a little bit numb just to survive the daily onslaught of it. And so I feel like as I was writing the story, I, w I was praying every single time I've written, please guide me that I will be able to write. And uh, my sister who passed had just written a book, and she said, Clinice, if you always pray for guidance, you'll never have writer's block because it will just flow from you. And when you have writer's block, you know that you're trying to write instead of the flow. 
And that's happened two times that I've been blocked. I've prayed and it was like, well, you didn't, you didn't ask for guidance. And so I had to just go back and delete those pages. But whenever I've been writing from that place, I kept wondering, why am I writing this story of me? For me as a little girl and what I was learning of my lessons in life. Why am I writing about my life in baseball? Why am I writing about the great parts of baseball and the love that we had at the beginning? Why am I writing about all these experiences that I had with my daughter who was just the love of my life when she was first born and I never wanted to be a parent. She was the most amazing child. And I got to have that experience of writing about her at the exact same moment that she had a child that I was able to hold and go visit and remember what it's like to hold a precious little baby and feel their little breath on your neck and feel and hear their little noises and feel them, your body rocking back and forth. I'd forgotten all of that because when TJ was born, it was like a grenade went off and he was crying and he didn't stop crying and we were in baseball and it was, Jim and I's marriage was falling apart and it was just a bomb. So from there on, I didn't remember feeling. I didn't remember my life. I didn't remember the spiritually grounded, happy, vivacious girl I was growing up and how fearless I was in being independent because I knew that I was guided in my life. I knew that I was safe. Um, I just remember the performer and the, play, you know, the travels that I did. I was remembering all that and writing about it. And so I was coming back alive to myself in those, in those pages, which was interesting. I didn't know that was going to happen. And then I started thinking, boy, would I ever have given anything to have my parents do this? Because they lived fascinating, interesting lives. I wish I had, that they had taken the time to write their life story, that I could open a book and read their life from their own hand, their own experiences, their own emotions, their feelings. Oh, I wish I would have taken a tape recorder and asked them questions and had that recorded. So I thought, well, you know, if nothing else, this is a gift for my children to have. But as I was going through the, through the different um, books, I realized that in the third book, in this autism book, that there are three characters, which is my son, me, and God who was guiding us. So God was bringing me along to be able to bring him along with a group of people around us, the teachers, the aides, the doctors, the therapists, that were the support team, if you will. So how could I be writing a book? I'm very clear on who, who CJ is. I'm very clear on who Christian is. I'm very clear on who Chris is. I know that character inside and out. I've been through everything with that kid. And so I can write about him very, very well. But I was not able to really write about me or my real feelings or the truth about what was going on until I wrote all that other stuff. So that other character, that second character in this book, which is me, is very much real and alive to me now. And I feel like in the process of doing that, I've also been able to become aware once again of who God was in my life back then and who God is in my life again now. And I feel like in some ways, and this is not in the book, but, but I gave up that feeling of my allegiance to God and his, 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 his part in my life when I got attached to men. They become the God in my life. My husband was everything. I just wanted him to be happy and safe and well. My second husband was everything. I just wanted him to be happy and safe and well. I will give anything for them to be happy and safe and well because then I'll feel 
as though I'm saved, as <laughs> though so I'm, you know, loved and happy. But um, I lost a little bit of perspective with of my religion, if you will, when I was no longer a Mormon, and then I was going to the, you know, my sons were going to the Baptist church, and then we were doing the Scientology programs, and that, you know, there was there's there's criticism from different camps, you know, the the born again people don't think Mormons are really Christians, and then God forbid what people think about Scientology, and then sometimes people think that the born again Christians are like off the other end, and then you just want to kind of be all the way far left. So it's been interesting for me to get these different perspectives of people being uncomfortable if I'm writing about, oh, well, don't write that you were a Mormon missionary because then the born-again people won't want to read the book. Oh, but don't write about Scientology because then anybody that doesn't like Scientology won't want to read the book. Oh, don't write about Jim and Kathy because anybody that that loves them is going to think you're going to be bad and wrong by doing that. So I started feeling like, who am I writing this book for? You know, um, yeah. and now I'm finally at the point of realizing I wrote those 400 pages so I knew who I was. I'm writing the book from the perspective of I agree. I don't need to go into so much detail about any certain religion. I don't need to go into so much detail about some of the the BS that really happened with Jim and Kathy. I just want to be able to tell the chronological order of the story and come out at the end with lessons that I learned that hopefully a reader can learn and hopefully can be inspiring to others that know that, that when, you get, when you're in the worst of the worst trench and getting kicked and thinking you're going to die, that you can make it and that you can make it. And it can be very, very bright at the end if you just keep, keep believing, keep pushing and keep pulling and keep knowing that you're guided. Okay. So, question, next question is, do you believe this book can help others? And is it worth the risk of being rejected or criticized to find out? I do believe this book can help others. I'm glad that we've done this recording today. I'm, I'm glad that I had that little moment of realizing what, what my block is. Um, is it worth being criticized? I think that if it can help, then that makes the criticism, the potential criticism worth it. Because you can't please everybody. Some, no matter what, no matter what I do, um, I'm going to have criticism. And maybe that's why I've become more isolated because I'm like, well, nobody can criticize me if I'm just in my little house doing my little thing and I don't, I don't open, open myself up to anybody. But I even mm-hmm. noticed like, we, like one of my main activities is card club and I love playing cards. But card club is very zen to me because I noticed that that's really my social outlet and I started playing cards more and more like once a week, twice a week. And certain players are very competitive and they don't like it if you are their partner and you guys lose. Some people don't could care less. It's a card game and they're there to socialize and they're there for the food. Some people are very competitive. And I started noticing how differently I played with different players. If I was with a competitive person and I didn't want them to get mad at me, would I really make a bid? I felt I could win, but what if I didn't? And then I started getting more brave and going, you know what, I'm going to make my bid. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if I can make it. And if I don't make it, hey, it's just a card game and they can just, you know, get over it. 
I did my best, but I'm not going to not play my game so that somebody else doesn't get mad at me. And even as I'm saying this, I'm realizing that it's a metaphor for the book. I'm not going to not write the book in case Jim and Kathy get mad at me. I'm going to play my game, which is I've played a, I've played a solid life with my son with integrity and the parts where I feel like I've, I'm, I'm, I'm play, I feel like I'm writing it fair. The parts where I was playing victim or the parts where I was, you know, not at my best self, I'm writing that too. But there's, mm-hmm. there's truth in this book. And I feel, like, I feel like it has value. I really, really do. I feel like if I write it from a place of truth, my sister said something very important to me yesterday. She says, Clinice, everybody's got an opinion, but God is not an opinion. God is truth. So she said, if you're writing from a place of truth and not worrying about writing from whose opinion is going to matter, but if you're just writing the truth, that God thread is going to follow through in your writing. So that's more where I'm, I'm feeling that I wanted to do this recording today because the last recording we did, we were talking a lot, and it helped me to listen to myself talk about the past, talk about baseball and how we made the major leagues and what was going on when CJ was born and what was going on at these certain times. But I wasn't really talking about the future, which is I'm, I'm living pretty much in my future now because everything from here on out is the happy part of the story. I've done the hard, hard, hard stuff. And God willing, and, and I pray to God that every day that my children continue to be healthy and well and that I get to celebrate that they are every day because that would make things very hard again if they weren't or friends or things like that. But now I feel like I'm, I'm so excited to continue to live in the joyous part of what we've created through this very, very hard path we were on that I never knew we would make it out of it. And I certainly never knew it would look this great and be this fun. And I want to enjoy it. I want to enjoy it. I want to be able to write a story where people know the truth of the story. I don't want to be afraid of the truth. I don't want to be afraid to say, you know, this is what happened. And if someone says, well, why did you have to bring this up? Well, because this is what happened. (laughs) That's all I'm saying, because that's what happened. So, you know, if something bad happens to you and you get through it on the other side and there's a lesson and some good stuff that happens at the end, do you not talk about the bad thing that happened just because you want to only talk about the stuff that's at the end? You wouldn't have gotten to the good stuff at the end if you hadn't learned the lessons and the bad parts. Right. So learning those lessons and the bad parts is part of the journey and part of the – I feel like I would be ripping myself off and ripping the reader off if I'm not saying this is what happened. I'm not trying to, you know, write anything different than just what happened. This is just what happened. And some of the things that happened weren't, weren't good. They weren't, they weren't cool. But this is what happened. And this is what I did about it. And sometimes I wasn't so cool in the process. But this is what happened. <laughs> and now this is what's happening now, you know? Right. I have another question that's my own. Mm-hmm. Um. By writing this book, what do you help what do you hope to do for the treatment of autism? Um, 
That's a really good question because I don't feel on any level that I'm an expert on autism at all. I feel like I'm an expert on my son. Um, I feel like um, autism is very individual, and it's, the umbrella is so broad. It's not like, like when you look at a Down syndrome individual, you can tell right away from their, how they look that they're Down syndrome. They have a very specific look. And a lot of times, a lot of the behaviors are very similar. They're just very loving, smart. You know, they just have a different look, and they've got a little bit of a, you know, a path to go on with their special needs and their injury or whatever. I'm not as familiar with Down syndrome. I'm just using that as an example. I noticed that when I took CJ to a, to a social class once, and almost all the kids were Down syndrome, and they, they were so much more further along socially than, than CJ was or Chris was. And I remember going, wow, they're so bright and they're so loving and they're so cute and they're so fun, but they all look the same in the sense that I know that they're Down syndrome. No one would look at Chris and know that he's autistic until he either starts talking or, you know, acting a certain way. But you wouldn't just look at a picture and go, oh, he's autistic. And so I feel like each, each family has their own path to trod in understanding to what, to what severity is your child autistic, to what, um, you know, are they going to be verbal? Are they going to be able to talk? Are they going to be able to handle sound? Are they going to be able to handle touch? Are they going to be able to use a machine to talk with? Are they going to be able to walk? Are they going to be able to, you know, there's so many things that you don't know that, that a lot of times when you see Down's kids, they, they can just do all that. So mm-hmm. um, I, think, I think that as far as my, I don't feel like I'm an ex- expert on autism at all. I feel like probably I'm the least person to be considered an expert because of when I learned about autism, which was 32 years ago when nobody knew anything. All, all I had to do, all I was learning about was my son and his version of autism. I was learning about who he was and what his um, deficits were. The Philadelphia program really helped me with that. That was a specific program where, where we took him there for a week and the doctors looked and said, here's a chart of a normal baby and here's where your son lies. These are his deficits and this is what we want to do to help make those go away. So it wasn't even looked at there as autism. It was not even given a label. It was looked at these are the deficits in comparison to a normal child, and this is what we want to do to help get you back up to a higher level of normal. So um, I, don't, I, I don't feel like I'm an expert on autism at all. Um, I feel like within the autism community, that's why at the very beginning of the book I said, these are the definitions of autism. If more thorough um, definition, go to Autism Speaks. There's so much stuff on the Internet. I feel like in my story, I can say, you know, it's very important when you're navigating the school system, it's very important to, to get involved in early intervention. It's all out there now. It wasn't there for me. Um, so I feel like the parents today know way more than I do just by clicking on the, on the computer. I, I don't feel, you know, technology kind of ran me by while I was doing all the programs. So I don't feel like I'm an expert with technology, I'm not, that's kind of like, I kind of laughed a little as I was doing the dishes yesterday. I thought, well, if they're going to put something bad on me on social media, I probably would never see it. Because <laughs> I don't have a Twitter account. I'm not on LinkedIn. I barely know how to use 
you know, my Facebook, and I probably would never see it. I don't, I don't watch the news. I don't get the newspaper. I probably would never even know until someone said, oh, did you see that really bad article? And I'd go, oh, no, tell me. You know, that's kind of how I get my news. I was out talking to my neighbor across the street, you know, social distancing, and she was telling me some stuff about Governor Wolf. And I go, thank you for giving me the news. I wouldn't have known that. Like, she was my newspaper of the day. So I, I kind of giggle that I'm not really up to speed on technology or on social media. And so I don't know that I would be considered an expert in the field of autism. I, if, if, I, think, I think from my book, I want any parent, whether they have a child with autism or any, even a normal child, um, to say, take the time to know your kid. I took as much time knowing my typical kids later. I've been spending so much time reading myself, my typical kids now that CJ's doing well, that Chris is doing well, and trying to make up for the lost time that when I wasn't available to them and apologizing to them that I wasn't and, what, and how are you doing now and what, is there anything I can do for you now and can we have a relationship now based on where we are. Like for parents to know their children for, for, for parents that are divorced to remember their children, to not forget them, to not come into a new marriage and think you have a right to be possessive of your new spouse and have them not remember their family, to be gracious, to, you know, in the end, it's all about loving one another in this world. And if we've, if we've taken the, the, the you know, We've taken the time to make a baby. You're responsible. And I wasn't taking responsibility at first for, for CJ for whatever reason. Me giving up on him, me not wanting to do the job, me wanting to like put him aside and say, you don't matter anymore. You're over there in California and they're taking care of you. The way it happened was wrong. The way they didn't prepare me, the way that, you know, and that was part of my journey is that everything just blew up and plans that I had made went away and, and I have remorse for that, but I don't anymore. You know, that, that was in the past, and now I'm here. So I think that my message is not so much to the autism community, ironically. Um, and I'm glad you asked me that question, because I think I'm going to probably have to write an epilogue or a chapter about that to say I'm not an expert, and these are, this is why. <laughs> you know, 32 years ago, nobody knew about autism. I certainly don't know that much about different parts of autism. I never had a child that wasn't verbal. I don't know what it's like to have that experience. I don't know what it's like to have a child that, um, you know, is, continues to be drugged up and violent. I can give you an option, but that's not my experience. So maybe someone else can make another better decision based on what I did, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay. Out of this conversation, what have you learned? I've learned that I'm really blessed to have you, and I don't say that lightly. Um, I've, I've learned that you asked, you've asked me questions at the right time today to make me realize that I've been letting myself be afraid of something that I don't need to be afraid of. I, fear is only in me. I'm the only one that stops me. Um, if I'm coming from truth, if I'm coming from guidance, prayerfully, if I'm just keeping the story moving along, 
chronologically and truthfully, um, I have a right, just as anybody does, to tell their story and be heard. As long as I'm coming from a place of wanting in the end to help, um, and even during, you know, it's just that there's some hard stuff in the middle. But um, I've learned from this conversation that that I really do want to write this story and I really do want to continue and I do want to live my life and I don't want to be afraid, even apart from the book, to be, to shine, to, to learn to be that person that I, that I used to be before autism kind of took over. And for me to recognize that while I'm letting, you know, Chris shine, and celebrating all the things he's doing, that I can also start looking to myself as, as a separate individual from his journey with autism as well. You know, it's a mother and a son's journey through autism. And I will always be there for him. I'll always be responsible for, be, for him. That, is, that makes my life different than other women my age. But I do want to be open to life's opportunities, even through the writing of the book. And not be afraid of, I don't want to be afraid. I don't want to live my life in fear. It's funny because it's called my fearless life. You know, Chris is afraid mm-hmm. of, I'm just thinking of this as I'm talking. He's afraid of loud, you know, helicopter noises. He's afraid of, you know, sound and touch and all those things he was fearless of. But what have I become afraid of? I've been afraid of rejection and criticism I'm afraid of not having everybody love me or approve of me. I'm afraid of someone saying something mean that will hurt my feelings and then I have to shut down. But that's a choice that I, that I make. I don't have to let that happen. And I think that I've learned from this conversation that, that not everybody is going to ever love everything that someone does. Even the brightest stars and even the, you know, the most, most religious saints are criticized. Even the, you know, people that I look to as my heroes and mentors get criticized. Mm-hmm. And how do they handle it? Do they stop or do they keep going? So I think, I think you know, when I was younger, I used to look to people that were my – they. That, that I looked up to how they lived their life and I tried to emulate that. And I think I need to do that more and remember that I am strong and that I am brave and that I can be strong and brave for myself and not just on behalf of Chris. I guess I'm being mm. asked to step out and be brave for, for Clinice and not just for Chris. And that's more scary. I feel like I can fight the good fight and not care what anybody says because I'm under the that can cover of she's doing it for her autistic son, so she's still actually really good. And now when I'm doing it for me, I don't have that shield of that, that, that little cover, you know? It's like, well, why is she doing it? Well, she's doing it just because she's, she's her. And what's that? What does that mean? What does her mean? Who is she? And what is she about? And without that cover of her autistic son, you know? That makes her great. What, why is she doing this apart from that? So I guess I'm kind of looking at those, those questions and realizing that I need to be brave for me. Mm-hmm. 
Let me um, share a little something. When you were talking mm-hmm. about being being brave for you, when I received this injury um, starting, it'll be 10 years in um, December 31st, when I first got hit in the head with the the statue and, and um, the the years of recovery and what it's taken, uh, what has stood me instead, and I, if anything, um, I was like you, much better fighting for other people than myself. But what has kept the doctors on my side is in getting the good help that I have is I decided to fight for me and demand to them that I go back to what I want the what I was that I was not you know I took my bio in and I made and I went and showed them that and I had accomplished a lot at that time and and since more and I said this is who I am when I first met my doctor and this is who I expect to be when we're finished I you know and they they look at me and I say this is who I am you know and this is how you will treat me and this is what I'm aiming for and um, they have been they have been very considerate and um, I've gotten probably much better care than a lot of people have because I have fought for me and the attitude. And that was new for me. Um, you know, listening to you, I'm aware of how how presenting myself that way and being determined to get to be as well as I could be. And then the past year going through what I've done, um, how that attitude which was new for me has worked for me I'm so proud of you I really am and I appreciate you sharing that I'm so proud of you for doing that that's inspiring yeah I am you know I I made the medical system pay attention to me right just yeah and um and you know when they start doing what I want they hear about it so I love uh, that I love that and that makes me so, think ironic go ahead I want to hear everything you're saying yeah, so that's what um you know I hear you saying is what you um are ready to claim to do for yourself yes yes Thank you for pointing that out. And I was just thinking that while you were saying that, as I made them listen, um, and that's what I started doing with the school system. That's when I started becoming strong for Chris, is when I stopped going in as the wimp and as the victim and as the martyr and the person, the mom that cries. And I went in and said, you're going to pay attention to me because I know the law and I know what mm-hmm. is, my son deserves. 
and I'm not leaving until you start paying attention. And we'll have as many meetings as we need to, and I'll bring an attorney in if I need to, and I will stay in the school as long as I need to until the right things happen. And it's interesting because that's when things started really going right, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I would literally be in the school day after day, and the teacher, and I'd say, I understand you're annoyed that I'm here, but until the, an aide comes to help my son, and it has to be the right aide, because you haven't brought in the right aide right now. You've brought in people that are reading the newspaper or grabbing his shirt or calling him honey. I need someone who is trained to do this job right. And they brought someone from the special school that they were trying to send him to, you know, an hour and a half away. And she was with him the rest of the, the whole rest of his time through high school. And she, he was amazing. She was amazing with him. And then we started going to the meetings with donuts and he would sit and read the paper while we had these meetings. And everybody was like, look how great he's doing. And I'm like, what happens when you follow a success plan? It's, it, you have success. So it's, it's a great story. And I'm, I'm thinking of what you said when you said that. I was thinking, yeah, that's what I started doing with the school, finally. Mm-hmm. You know? And if anything, that is one of the major things that um, you have to teach parents. Um, you know that they they have to, and and they do have to do their part. They can't expect they can't expect the school to do the socialization that they're right. not willing to do. Right, it has to um, be happening at school and at home. Yeah, and and if they the school can only, I'm thinking of Jim's wife Millie, who was an excellent um, special education teacher, and. She was so good because she would put demands on the parents. He's accomplished this, and I don't expect this to go away when you get home. Right. I love that. Yeah, and, and, you know, a lot of times that was very helpful in the child's development. Uh, She was teaching... And she was teaching special ed from 7th to 12th grade. She would have three grade levels in her class. And I she love was, teachers like that. Love teachers like yeah. that. I applaud teachers like that because they do make such a difference in the yeah. lives of the children and also in the lives of the families. And yeah. I, I've, I found, you know, it has to be, I learned what I needed to do with CJ by sitting in the corner and watching the therapist work with him because they were doing things that was making him listen that I wasn't doing. They were being consistent with him. They weren't giving in to him. And when Mm -hmm. I went into the school system, fortunately, I finally had principals that would let me go in and show them what I had learned from the TSSs and show the aide what I had learned from the TSSs and put our success plan in place. Because if they hadn't done that, I would have continued to bug them. But I didn't mm-hmm. know what, I, what needed to happen with CJ, and they didn't know because the, the funding structure changes. When you go into the, you, before he's in school, the government's paying for all of the therapeutic staff support in your home. Once you go into school, that all goes away. Now the government is paying for an aid in the school, and so you don't no longer have the TSSs that are being paid for. You get one or the other, not both. So when mm. the TSSs went away and I went into the school system, 
if the A didn't know what they were doing, then we aren't continuing that growth and that success model. So mm -hmm. I learned so many things about what needed to happen to transfer knowledge and transfer, which is what you're saying she did, this teacher did. She was saying, we did this today. I want to transfer that to home, and I expect you to continue doing that so that this doesn't go away. I love that. Right. Yeah. So. Okay. Well, I've got a question for you. It's a little bit off the cuff, and you don't have to do this, but it just occurred to me that if you are willing to, it would be helpful for me, because when I listen back to this, it really does help me. Um, I kind of want to know, if you're willing to do this, um, what is your impression of me since you have met me and are working with me? How would you describe the person you're working with? I'm willing to do that. Um, first word that comes to my mind is tenacious. Hmm. You just don't. I mean, you back off, you circle, you, you know, you, you find reasons not to do things, but you come back. So I see that as tenacious. And hmm. I see that as good. And you had that tenacity, or that wouldn't have lasted for you. Okay. Um, Thank you. Intelligent. A little stubborn. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, complex. Uh, in what way complex? Well, it's fascinating to me, your story. Not so much the pro ball life or anything. Is the, the different layers of experiences that you have had to become you. Mm-hmm. Um, that is how I, you know, you, you've had all these different layers and I, I'm fascinated with how you made decisions to survive. Um, we all make through our own traumas and the way our own growing, um, decisions on how we're how we're going to see the world and what we're going to do um so that that um that complexity it's kind of like okay cj he has all his different names mm -hmm. christian chris and how he has taken on different stages, yes. uh, growth, yeah, and what has been happening with me. And I kind of, I was thinking about this this morning. You know, 
you were born Clonice. What was your maiden name? Hunt? Hunt. Mm-hmm. So you become, you were Clonice Hunt, and there is there her for the first 21 or 22 years. Then you became Clonice Vincent, and you were that for at least a decade. And then you yeah, became... Clonice Scott. Clonice Scott. Yeah, what did I say? I don't know. Mm-hmm. So and you then were, you said you said Vincent, so it was Gott and then Vincent, yeah. Yeah, and then um, I never. What was your second husband's name? Did you take his name? Vincent. Yep. Yeah, and that's so his was name. Hunt and then Jim Gott and then Eddie Vincent. Yeah, I probably would go back to Clinice Hunt. <laughs> you know what? I am Clinice Hunt on Facebook now. And I'm, ah. I'm I'm going by Clinice Hunt, except for you know it's just so complicated to sit to change it all on the social security cards and everything. But I am going by Clinice Hunt now. Isn't that ironic? If you look yeah. me up on Facebook, I'm Clinice Hunt. Yeah, that's right. That's what gets me confused sometimes. <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, I you know I deliberately changed my name. Um, Changes totally different uh, than what people are expecting. Uh, so I, I that's where I see the you know the complexity layer after layer, and uh, um, I can see you know. <laughs> so I see a fun, charming woman who can get really pissed when she doesn't get her own way. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um um and uh you know, I see part of you that is peeking out would like to claim some of that spotlight or be a spokesperson. I and I and I see I see what you have I wouldn't be putting the time in if I didn't. Um I really believe you have a lot more work to do. What does that mean? I'm always curious because you're you're very very wise, and I'm curious. Somehow, you know, from experiencing and watching my own clients and watching my own life and and shit these last ten years. And now um, I've, I've done a hell of a lot of living. And, um, you know, God has sent, I, have, I must have a troop of guardian angels, um, some of them re- requesting retirement. <laughs> They're sending their news. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, I think of some of the things that has happened to me and some of the near-death experiences I've had or, dangerous experiences and I think good God how did you get through that uh, right. and and I really feel like you know the hand of God was at least trying to thump me on the head and say wait you know here <laughs> but um, what I see for you um, and that's what I um, and for Chris too this is 
then I think you two have a story that could that could um, help and inspire people who are lost in the world of dealing with a child, boy or girl, who's wrapped up in this this world of autism. No, you're not an expert in the field, but you are an expert in what you did and lived. You are an expert of learning how to challenge the system. Um, you know how to make connections. And somehow what popped into my mind as you were talking was, and, and the thing, one of the things you said that, that really bothered me, and I know it is from talking to Millie, who was Jim's wife, um, how, how the, the kids at a certain age are just left with nothing to do. You said mm-hmm. that cutoff point is 25, right? 